Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone. My name is Erin Molino Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute. And my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown, we are very excited to be joined once again by Dr. Jacob M. Appel, who is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Medical Education at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where he serves as Director of Ethics Education in Psychiatry and Assistant Director of Academy for Medicine and the Humanities. He is currently co-chair of the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry's Committee on Psychiatry and the Law and a judge for the 2021 National Book Critics Circle Award. So Dr. Appel, thank you so much for being here with us again on The Barrier Breakdown. We surely appreciate you coming back. Well, thank you for having me. It's always exciting. Yes. And this week we are here to talk about conservatorships and guardianships. So can you start by uh, sharing a little bit with our listeners who may not be uh, completely up to speed on what those are or what they involve? Could you share a little bit uh, with them as to what is a conservatorship or a guardianship? Sure. And I'm going to use the two terms interchangeably today. There are some states in which the two terms mean slightly different things and guardians have more power than conservators. Um, that is not the case in California, where there's been a lot of attention to some celebrity cases, and it's not the case here in New York. So I'm going to use the two interchangeably. Basically, you end up with a guardian or a conservator when a court determines, and it's always a legal determination, that you don't have the wherewithal, whether cognitively or psychiatrically, to manage your own life. And they can be for a limited purpose, or they can be comprehensive, meaning they can determine that you don't have the right to manage your own finances because you're incapable of doing it, to manage your own health care, or to manage all of your life decisions. Um, and the way I like to describe it is guardianship at the extreme in New York State makes you the equivalent of a child. You don't have the right to enter into contracts or rent an apartment or even get married on your own. Interesting. And what are some ways, um, some situations that might lead to that conservatorship? So you mentioned that they could have a cognitive um, of a problem, I'll say, that is not letting them act responsibly on their own. Is there anything else related to, um, you know, situations that might occur that could also lead to that? Well, I think generally the two most common categories are those people who suffer cognitive decline, dementia, generally older individuals, and then individuals who suffer some kind of psychiatric illness or cognitive impairment that keeps them from managing their own lives, um, even though they may have their memory intact, may be able to live functionally in the community otherwise. Okay, great. And how can conservatorships be helpful? So I think conservatorship has gotten a very bad rap in the news of late, but for many people, it's extremely important. If you're an elderly person who's cognitively impaired, um, a conservator can help pay your bills, make sure that you have a place to stay, make sure that your rent is paid, make sure that you get your medical care appropriately. Um, Or if you're someone with severe mental illness who has relapses of psychosis, during that psychosis, the guardian can make sure that you get to a hospital, make sure that you don't spend all of your money impulsively that you later regret when you're no longer psychotic, steps like that. And you mentioned that a celebrity case in the media um, where there has been some mention of uh, and shed some light on how conservatorships can be harmful. Can you speak a little bit to that? 
Sure. So I, I will emphasize that the cases, the case of Britney Spears, who I will confess, I am a generation too old to know very much about her music. Um, I learned from the medical students most of what I know about her. Um, and I can't comment on the details of her case because I've never evaluated her, but I can comment more conceptually based on what we've learned in the media. Um, and at least what's been reported in the media is that she's had a conservative, conservator, first her father, and then her father and a representative of financial institution for a number of years now. And she has reportedly claimed that she neither knew she could challenge that conservatorship, nor does she want that conservatorship. And a lot of negative press has been attached to the fact that allegedly that conservator no longer just manages her finances, but has made significant life decisions, like insisting that she take medication on a daily basis and insisting that she remain on birth control against her. Yes, I heard both of those things. Um, and it seems like she's definitely in a position, like you had mentioned, that she was unknown that she could appeal, that it was unknown that she could appeal that, as well as her... Um, her wanting that conservatorship uh, to no longer exist. Can you speak to, you know, when someone is capable of, of making something like, you know, I think it was quoted like $40 million a year or something, but they're still, you know, capable of earning that, but they're still incapable of making medical decisions for themselves or financial decisions for your, for themselves. Can you, that, that must be incredibly frustrating, I'm sure, um, for someone, you know, how do you get out of a conservatorship? Is it true that it's very hard to do that, that once, once you have a guardianship or a conservatorship, it's, it's actually more difficult to get the, the, the courts to, um, relinquish that? Well, I should mention at the outset, two things. One, that, one may have capacity to make certain decisions and not other decisions. So one can be a gifted entertainer or a gifted scholar or a gifted artist and be unbelievably skilled in one's domain and not be able to make sure there's food on one's dinner table um, or that one is clothing on when one leaves one's apartment. I don't know what the details are of this case, but I've seen those sorts of cases. So we want to be cautious about, about making a broad statement that it's a swipe across the board in terms of ability or inability. Um, and in the same way, ending guardianship or conservatorship is very flexible. There are going to be some cases where the guardian and the subject agree the guardianship is no longer needed. Um, for example, if you have a significant psychiatric illness and you get treatment and you're stabilized and the guardian is a relative, they may go to the court with you and say a guardian is no longer necessary. Um, there will be other cases where there's disagreement. Often those occur in cases where the patient has a relapsing remitting condition. So in theory, if you had a condition like bipolar disorder, where you can be floridly psychotic when you're not treated, but as functional as anybody else, and sometimes even very high functioning when you are appropriately treated, you may want your guardian to step back when you're treated, but then you may become impaired again and need a guardian again. And how frequently that occurs can create controversy. Great. You know, one of the things we talked about is some of the positive things and some of the things that are more public. What do you see as some of the difficult things, uh, I guess the bad and the ugly side of conservatorship that uh, that maybe some should be aware? Sure. So I think we have very little data in this country, not just in how many people have guardians or conservators, um, which may be many more than we would intuitively guess, um, probably in the tens or hundreds of thousands. And we have very little data on who those people are. Some of them are family members deeply invested in the patient or the person who's subject to guardianship. Others are court appointed and maybe more or less interested in doing the job. There was a very high profile case profiled in The New Yorker a few years ago about people in Nevada who were abusing the system, getting large numbers of 
elderly patients who actually weren't that impaired getting the course declared than guardians and the patient simply didn't have the wherewithal to understand how to undo the process. Um, so we want to be very careful who we choose as guardians um, and we want to have a better eye to who they are. Um, so, the, you know, you have basically, you have the court determining through experts, uh, you know, if someone is not competent to be able to do this on their own. But how do they decide criteria of who is competent to be making those decisions for them? How does the court determine, you know, uh, any one individual is the right person, whether it be uh, cognitively or morally or ethically on that end of the side of things? Yeah, well, I think there are two distinct questions. One is figuring out whether the person needs a guardian. Um, and you can look at evidence of how they've made choices in the past. Have they been able to ensure they get necessary food, shelter, medication? Um, have they engaged in behavior that the average person or a reasonable person might consider highly unreasonable or dangerous? Um, are they acting in what the law might call very broadly with a sound mind? Um, and then there's the question of who you appoint as the guardian or conservator. Yeah. Because you want to appoint someone who has the patient's interests at heart. And often the patient's interests and the guardian's interests, if they're family or friends, may not entirely coincide or may overlap in some way and not another. Is there any times uh, someone who oversees or manages at all the, the, the individual who's making the decisions for those that have been deemed unable to make their decisions uh, a place to check in? How, how is that all uh, kind of uh, oversight? How is What does that look like? The oversight varies, but it's fairly limited. So, for example, in California, there are two different kinds of oversight. There's one that requires renewal every year. And there's another kind that simply once you have a guardian appointed exists indefinitely. And there's really no oversight for that unless somebody challenges it in court, um, which can be particularly challenging. I, I always point out that we talk about a celebrity case. If you're a high-powered celebrity and you're unhappy with your guardianship, which seems to be the case here, and you think about how hard it is to undo that, imagine the average person out there who is elderly, maybe mildly cognitively impaired, or suffering from a mental illness, has very limited funds, how hard it's going to be for that person who doesn't have access to the media and Congress and our podcast how they're going to challenge their guardianship. And the answer is almost impossible. Yeah, it seems like the most vulnerable of vulnerable populations. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's why there's interest in Congress in setting up a system for increased oversight. And however one feels about guardianship, and I, I don't want to give guardianship a bad name, it serves some very important social purposes, um, although it's capable of being abused, I think the goal of a better oversight system is to make sure that guardians are doing their jobs. Yeah, it seems like there could be a lot of ethical issues that can be uh, come to light during these guardianships. So what you propose, I think, is an excellent idea um, as far as that oversight. Um, can you tell us, are there any alternatives to conservatorships for people who perhaps need um, need some assistance, but not necessarily maybe through the courts, through a conservatorship? Well, I think you want to have the least restrictive way of handling people's autonomy. You want to take away as little freedom as you have to. So at the ultimate extreme, you could put people in a group home or an institution but that would substantially limit their ability to function in the world. Um, there are people who have their rights to make specific decisions terminated with limited guardianships for the purpose of certain financial decisions or what I often deal with in the hospital, certain medical decisions. Um, and finally, um, courts are often swayed by the choices of the individual patient regarding whom they want to have be their guardian or decision maker. So you can, in many jurisdictions, execute a document that say, if I lose my ability to make financial decisions, this is my healthcare power, this is my financial 
power of attorney, or this is my healthcare proxy. This is the person who I want to make decisions for me. And unless there's a compelling reason for the court to override that, they'll generally honor it. Okay, very good. Well, um, this was very fascinating and uh, pivoting away from this, you know, um, very popular story in the news. We wanted to kind of take a moment to talk about uh, a CE training that you're doing through the Center for Ed for um, that some of our listeners may be interested in. Uh, I understand that you are doing an event uh, entitled Malingering, the V code that dare not chart its name. That'll be this coming November the 8th, 2021, and that will be via Zoom. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your upcoming, upcoming training? Sure, one of the areas I do research in are individuals who feign medical or psychiatric illness. And there may be adaptive or desirable reasons that people feign illness. And then there may be antisocial or counterproductive reasons and a lot of cases in between. So I, I will give you an example of three different kinds of cases. Um, many people in this audience, including me, have turned to their partner at one point and said, you know, honey, I have a headache. Because saying, you know, honey, I don't wanna have sex with you is far less appealing. Um, that is an example of feigning illness to a productive purpose. When I was in elementary school, every day I had Hebrew school, which was three days a week, I miraculously developed a stomachache, which is why I don't speak a word of Hebrew, a perfectly adaptive purpose. Or more seriously, individuals in Vietnam and prisoners of war camp often feigned illness to get out of more onerous duty um, because they didn't want to be mistreated. Um, at the opposite extreme, there are people who come to a psychiatric emergency room where I work or to the hospital because they don't want to pay their child support. They don't want to face their court date. Um, they want an alibi for their extramarital affair. Um, they're hiding from their loan shark. It's a small number of people, but you can think about the range of different kinds of behaviors one might feign mental illness for. And then there are a lot of people who are what I describe as social service values. People who feign illness because they don't have food, they don't have a place to stay. And unfortunately, they know the system hasn't found a way to help them if they're not ill, so they claim to be ill. And I will tell you as a provider, my goal was to find ways to help those people, but help them in a way that meets their actual need, not giving them a bed in a psychiatric unit for $4,000 a night when what they need is a $7 sandwich. <laughs> That's true. I look forward to this. I'm really excited to, to attend. So I, I recommend everybody to do that. And another recommendation I would make is, uh, is the book, Who Says You're Dead? It's one of my favorite books of the year. Uh, and it talks a lot about medical and, uh, and behavioral ethics. And uh, I recommend anybody listening to, uh, uh, to, to get the book and read it. It's, it's a really good book. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Sure. Well, thank you so much for Dr. Appel. Thank you so much, Dr. Appel, for joining us again on the on the uh, Barrier Breakdown. It's always something exciting. I feel like we are discussing with you. And for anyone interested in Dr. Appel's upcoming training on November eighth, you can register for that training on our website, which is www.cbicenterforeducation.com. I am sure it will be a wonderful time. So, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. And thanks so much to our listeners for joining us this week on The Barrier Breakdown. We hope you stay safe and healthy. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. 
Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.